Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. Play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday, shot clock down to six. Finds Warren. Welcome to another edition of the Indy Cornrows podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. And of course, read us over at Indy Cornrows. We want to get your feedback. Let us know what you think. We, we put out some really good stuff, so we're excited to uh, to hear from you. I am joined, as always, by my esteemed colleague, uh, Caitlin Cooper. We're, we're coming at you with the regular season finale of Two Questions Too Odd. There might be more drama than The Bachelor in this one. Who knows? Uh, Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm excited to wrap up this series and thankful to everyone that listened to us, or at least listened to us to the end of the podcast and didn't turn us off. Like I've said it before, but those of you who did that, you're real ones. And thanks for interacting with the series and most recently sending us a pizza recipe. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to thank them for that, but I, I do appreciate the thought behind it. We'll dive into that one later because, uh, yeah, if you guys follow us on Twitter, you know that uh, Caitlin and I made a uh, quote unquote pizza um, that was sent into us. And uh, we have our thoughts on it. That is for for damn sure. Um. So before we dive in, do you want to explain what Two Questions Too High is again for any first-time listeners? Right. So if you're just now joining us, we call this Two Questions Too High once a month after Reb Porter, who was formerly the Pacers PA, PA announcer, would end the last two minutes of games by saying two minutes too high. So that's why we call it this. And we each just come up with two questions to ask the other person, and we don't know what the other person's going to ask. And it just kind of turns into a brainstorming session that normally lasts far longer than it should. So get ready for that. <laughs> Yeah, um, it, it's going to be exciting. I, I'm ready to dive in. And I get, well, do, who, do you want to go first? You want me to go first with a question? Um, let's start off. We got a really good question from, because I, I put feelers out on Twitter, because I would really much rather talk about what people want us to talk about. Yes. So um, let's see. Jeff Hasser. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He says, can you guys go Mary Kondo on the Pacers organization, roster, coaches, execs, who has sparked joy for you guys? So I love that because like a lot of the stuff going around around the Pacers right now has been excessively dramatic. And I would much rather talk about positive things because I barely ever get to do that when I'm on the pod. So what has sparked joy for you this season? Roster, coaches, execs. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of things have, and it like, like you mentioned, it's, it's um, especially with the last week, like I felt like uh, last night, I need to uh, not rein it in is the wrong way to put it. I just, I had a lot of negative feelings about the team and everything last night, even though they won. It was just a weird game. We were talking about it a little bit beforehand, but I mean, like Gogo Bataze figuring out how to play defense and set screens and to, the, the shot doesn't fall, but he's, he's shooting it a lot. It fell a little bit, but like watching the progression of, of some of the young guys individually has been awesome. Um, I think my favorite thing that I wrote about and talked about this season was Miles really developing his feel for the game. And I think that's something that, you know, everybody wants me to take more threes. I want him to take more threes. I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but I also don't want to say that it's not. He's 25. It's not like he's, you know, on the brink of death or anything. He can still change. Um, but point being, if you didn't watch this team play at all, you'd think Miles had the exact same year as last year with maybe a little bit more efficiency at the rim. But really, Miles, like, he, 
we talked a ton about his defense this year and rightfully so, but I thought his offensive improvements have been almost more impressive to me than defense because there were times last year where, um, you know, like going to miles as the solo center almost wasn't an option because of how rough those minutes could be offensively. Um, and now he's like gotten to be a, like a, a league average offensive center uh, at some points. And I think that's just so far and above where he was last year. Uh, like the decision-making is just better. His handle is a lot tighter and he can attack closeouts, which he, he flashed some of that last year, but he really put it together this year. Um, and it, I mean, it makes it, this is not me saying that I want to see the big split up or anything uh, or that, you know, Miles should be the one who stays, you know, that's a whole thing we always relitigate, but point being like, we're not just, touching that right yeah. now, Mark. Exactly. I'm, I'm just vibes. trying to say, I'm just good trying to vibes. say with, with miles, like it makes it uh it's just cool to see him, him growing that way. Cause it wasn't something I was sure was going to happen. Like developing your feel for the game isn't easy. Uh, and that's something that he, he, you know, it had been holding him back a little bit and to see him develop in that way had been really awesome this year. Cause he's a great dude. And it was really cool to see him take that step forward. Okay. Well, unfortunately I've made a very long list. Um, Oh, I have other stuff I could go on. Oh, okay, I'm excited okay. to hear what you have to say. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, I came up with stuff for almost most of the roster. Um, Goga, unfortunately, had a very rough night last night. Yeah, not um, a good Kogi. He had like a one-game break against the Hawks where they set the weave play and he actually set a hard screen in it, which normally he just like runs up like he's touching base and then yep. he over-eagerly dives. And then last night he was back to setting air picks again and had some other defensive issues. But um Overall, yeah, he's he's shown growth. I mean, especially I think in his understanding of space. Last year, you just wouldn't have seen him have the recognition of like, okay, and it's not even necessarily plays where a guy's penetrating the lane and he knows which spot to go find out on the floor. And obviously, he's not hitting the three at a really great clip, but understanding where his positioning needs to be has been a step forward for him. I think he's been more aggressive on the offensive glass, particularly. And sometimes in his drop coverage, I think you can see growth where last year he was kind of like a crossing guard at times and he would just back up to the stanchion without really um, making any of an impact on the ball handler or the roller and, and his block numbers. While we did touch on the last one where it's not the same as what Miles does as a shot blocker, but he is saving some points at the rim as well. But um, Goga actually wasn't on my full list here, but I do have the McDermott Sabonis connection. I looked up this morning. That's something that has really brought me a lot of joy to watch how those two move off of each other. And that's not necessarily brand new, but Sabonis to McDermott is the number one assist combination on the team. Like that, that blew my mind to look that up, that, that Sabonis has 99 assists to Doug McDermott. Brogdon to Sabonis is 94 assists, which Brogdon's missed some games here. But um, one of my favorite possessions of the entire game was when they were playing the Kings early on in the season. And they went from a Spain pick and roll that Doug, they use continuity to get into blind pig. And there's just all these different angles of passes that Sabonis can make to him. And, and if that doesn't continue, because I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with McDermott as a free agent, that's something that I'll miss watching that chunk of the offense and everything that they can do. And if I was McDermott's agent in particular, I would be like, Hey, everybody look at my client play against the Phoenix suns. Cause he just put out a flat out clinic in that game. Yeah. The way they attacked Phoenix's drop coverage. And, and I mean, Mikel Bridges is a good defender and he really had trouble sticking with Doug McDermott in that game with the various quick hitters that the Pacers ran. That's one thing that I really liked. Um, you brought up miles. I was actually going to put out something on the other end of the floor. Um, the second game in Miami, 
one possession that I really loved was when Tyler hero got like really frisky and was like, I'm going <laughs> to yeah. challenge miles again yeah, at the rim. And, and miles was clear out on the perimeter. And, and, you know, all three bigs have kind of had like some of that's overstated. They've all had some troubles guarding out at the perimeter at times, but miles was literally in the corner of the floor and Tyler hero put the ball around Jimmy Butler and bam is like almost a double screen at the block went to the left side and miles never crossed his feet. Like he shuffled and got over there and rejected that. And then Tyler Hero's just kind of on the ground. It's like, what are you doing? Don't you know, this is the league's leading shot blocker. And that, that brought a lot of joy in that particular game for me. Um, TJ McConnell, like we always think of him being this pesky guy who gets all these inbound steals, which is very fun to watch, but, and I wrote a piece about this in short, but not this particular possession. Cause I was more talking about how he gets to his spots for his own shots, but this involved miles. They were playing the Knicks and McConnell was starting in that particular game. And he is just going to make his defender guard him. Like we think so often about, you know, people duck under or whatever that they do. McConnell is great. He was in the left corner, I believe. And faked a screen with miles to try to get Derek Rose. Like he looked like he was going to attack it. Then he faked the reject. Then he went back and that forced Derek Rose to have to go over that pick. And then he hit miles under the basket. And I just think he deserves a lot of credit. We don't talk about how good his handle is a lot of the time. And TJ McConnell has a very saucy handle. Um, Malcolm Brogdon, a thing that I really like about him is when he goes left and finishes with his right on a floater. I just think that that's unique and I enjoy watching it. Mm-hmm. My favorite Karis Levert moment which I have written about this in the past too, but I love his shovel back pass and transition. Oh, it's so pretty. He has no, there's no, it's a seamless transition from pass, um, from dribble to pass. And it makes the people have to defend him as a driver. And he just shovels it right back behind him to the trailer. And I just think that that's big because it saves so much time. You're not having to stop, pivot and look for somebody. And he's also doing that with some, with, I've seen him do it with miles a couple times, just out of the pick and pop where it's a behind the back pass, not quite this shovel pass, but I really enjoy that. Um, I think O'Shea Brissett at times, if you wanted a definition of what does it mean to defend in the gaps, he does that. I mean, you could see that against the wizards. There was times where Russell Westbrook was posting or Russell Westbrook was isolating and he really got into the gaps of those drives. He's great at like what I said about miles earlier, he's great at shuffling his feet and cutting off angles in that way. I've written ad nauseum about the stuff that I liked about Edmund Sumner, even though he had a pretty rough night last night against Cleveland. And I'm looking at, Oh, one last thing, Justin holiday. That guy needs some props for what he did last night in that Cavs game. Mm -hmm. I know it was a shorthanded Cav team. I know this wasn't an overly inspiring win, but at halftime I tweeted like, Oh yeah, that's why the Pacers had to play box and one against Colin Sexton in the first matchup. Cause they would not have won that game. Like as much as I've criticized, how poorly they've set up their junk defenses this year. That's the one instance where I'm pretty confident in March when TJ McConnell had the 10 steal triple double that if they had not gone to box and one, they would not have won because Colin Sexton was just like murdering them from floater range. So last night they were Pacers were more doing switching and Colin Sexton had what, like 20 points at halftime, I believe. Yeah. And then in the second half, Bjorken just put Justin on him and really made him like Justin just hounded him. He kept him out of the paint for the night. Sexton was 0 of 7 against Justin. And I think that Justin does a lot of those things where he's kind of like, I don't know if you've read the book, but I would compare him to the giving tree book. Like where the man goes there. Yeah. Like the man goes. Oh my God. Exactly. He goes there and it's like, here, 
I'm the giving tree. Here's these apples. Go. That actually makes me want to cry a little bit. Here's my branches. Go build a house. Here's my trunk. Go build a boat. And like we see Justin get so worn down as the season went on for everything that he was being asked to do, because we watch him have to guard point guards so that Malcolm Brogdon can guard bigger wings. Then you watch him come in off the bench and he's having to guard bigger fours because they're constantly switching and he's wrestling. And I think that guarding up a position and guarding down a position probably impacted his three-point shooting as the season went Definitely. on. But then you can still see him in that Cleveland game. And it's like, that's why you want Justin Holiday on your team. Like, nobody's going to talk about this. We're going to focus on, and, and kudos to Keelan Martin. He had a great game. We're going to focus on Keelan Martin. But Justin is there in the shadows making the contributions that a lot of times go unsung. So I definitely wanted to give him a shout out. But those are the various things that have brought me joy. Did you have more? Yeah, definitely. I uh, So I really appreciate that because – I, it's just, especially with how the year has gone and all the flux that there's been, it's been easy to over. Well, I, I think in general, overlook what Justin Holiday does because a lot of times I don't notice the things that he does until I rewatch the game the next morning, and I see, oh wow, look at this stunt that Justin does that that you know maybe one other guy in the team will ever do, and it's just stuff that he regularly regularly does. Um, that that th- there just aren't guys on the team that do it, and it's so interesting too because. Um, I don't know if you saw Tony East uh, last week uh, brought up that, that with Justin on, on an interview that he was uh, one of the older players on the team. And Justin was like, hey, now I'm I'm the oldest player on the team. And it's weird to think about, too, because I think when you look at where the team has always been, they've always had like older vets on the team. But you really think about it like Justin is the oldest guy on the team by a pretty big margin. And that's it's not even saying that he's like even in terms of NBA age, he's not like that old. He's 31. Um so it's just kind of interesting to think about how he uh, like, like you can see the, the impact that he has on the sideline and just being there and a constant presence for the guys. Um, he is in some ways, like he's not going to be the leading scorer. He's not necessarily the top defender on the team because of course miles is there, but like, I, I think he is the ultimate glue player on the Pacers, which even that seems to undersell his role in some regards, but I agree with that 100%. And we're um, all, we're, oh, oh yeah. sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, well, we were also asked about coaches and executives, and I will say that I do appreciate that they waited the exact right amount of time to to deal Victor Oladipo. Like, I don't think that their timing with that probably could have been much better because they didn't let it fester. That could have gone on and on until the trade deadline or even longer. Like, let's pretend that they waited until the season was over and then he just walked. Um, especially with what Houston got in return from Miami in exchange for Victor. And mm-hmm. I have really enjoyed watching Karis LeVert. So um, I know that a lot of the top of the organization seems to be getting some criticism right now, but um, Karis has been great over the last 10 games, especially the last three. So I appreciate that from the coaching standpoint, just in my little nerdy world. Um, no, I, en- I, I enjoy when Nate Bjorkren takes his mask down and calls out specific plays. I could tell you what the play calls are for yeah. a lot of the plays that they run and what the signals are. So shout out that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I actually, uh, I my favorite drinking game I came up with this year. I didn't do it, but I just tweeted it out before a game. It was like, take a shot every time a coach takes his mask down. And I was like, oh man, I'll be dead by the end of the first <laughs> quarter. But um yeah, I agree. I think that hasn't been like the praises that haven't been sung enough. And I, I don't like, I mean, I, uh, I like, we talked about it, like the, the front office definitely deserved the criticism we talked about and have talked about, but like, just in regards to Karis, like, I agree. I think you and I were both under the presumption that Victor was going to be traded before the season was over. Like that's not exactly like it wasn't a hot take at the time or anything, but 
Um, for that to come 11 games in, 12 games in, I guess, 11 games with him, um, like, and the team had been performing well and they were starting to get national media headlines about how well they were playing um, because they had just absolutely demolished Portland uh, after beating Golden State too in that really good game. Like that's the Golden State game was my, well, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but uh, point being like the team's really starting to play well and they make that flip and to get Karis uh, and of course everything shook out unfortunately and i'm glad that he's healthy now i mean unfortunately at the time i should say like you never want anybody to be sick or, or have to deal with that luckily he's okay now um and that actually worked out for the best for him but um yeah i agree like i, I think kevin pritchard hasn't been talked about enough in terms of what he has done like i i got i, I mean kind of cool because i got asked to come on a couple of like national pods talking about you know what's going on with the pacers and they were like, well, how much like do you think Kevin Pritchard is going to get fired and stuff like that? I'm like, no, you know, I think Kevin has been a really good, really good member of the front office and done some really great things uh, in terms of making moves to to make the team younger or get them more potential or uh, just doing things that, that help the organization be better. And some people would call it lateral moves. I don't necessarily stand by that. I don't think Karras was a lateral move at all. You're getting a guy who you know is going to be here for a couple of years, is a little bit younger, and you know you don't have the same health concerns, at least not in the same way. And I, I mean, given what the Pacers are trying to do organizationally, like I, I just think that, that Kevin's been awesome. So yeah, I agree with that. Like, well, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest testament to that would be that in the back of my mind. I would be hesitant to criticize any trade the front office made at the time when it's made. Yeah. Cause I would think, you know, this is probably going to turn out for the better. And I don't want to look like, you know, a downer, a moron when this, when this, exactly when this goes well. And that just speaks to the strength of a lot of the moves that they've made, be it Karis or TJ Warren or the trade that sent Paul George for Victor and, and Sabonis, who is now a two-time all-star and is racking up like video game numbers lately. So um, yeah, I agree with you on the Kevin Pritchard front. Definitely. Um, so the last thing that I would say that I have as a as favorite thing that, that, you know, from a player this year, um, Karras went from like not really dunking much when he first started playing, which makes sense. You know, you're not going to be doing as much contact. Um, and I still have to look up what his rim driving numbers are. It feels like they've been higher recently. Um, but point being like he has thrown down some monster dunks recently which has been really fun because he's like, he's always had like a little bit of balance, but he's not like, he's more of like a shiftiness quickness kind of athlete uh, than, than a vertical athlete. So it's been really fun to see him launch, you know, a couple of Tomahawks down. Uh, I really enjoyed that. It's just cool to see like some of the little things that happen, but um, we could keep going on and on, but I do let's, let's get to the next one. So I, uh, because I accidentally prefaced it. I did not mean to, but uh, I want to ask you what your favorite game of the year has been or favorite moment from a game this year. That is tough because I would have to narrow it down to one of two. I feel like I need to make it post trade because mm-hmm. that speaks to what the team really is. I think that the Phoenix game was arguably the most complete performance that they've played on both ends of the floor. And I would note on that, that in the immediacy of Karras returning to the lineup, it's been a little bit more like it was these last three games. They weren't mixing in a lot of other defenses. I mean, I'm pretty sure that night they only played. Man, Miles had a really great night defending Devin Booker and Chris Paul in that um, floater area, like I talked about with Colin Sexton before. Um, Defensively, he had a really good game. And then offensively, the way that they attacked Aiton in those drops with Sabonis and Brogdon and McDermott was flat out clinical. Like that was a great game, but 
because of what happened in the playoffs last year, I feel like I tend to lean toward the two game doubleheader in Miami Mm -hmm. and maybe even more so the second game in some ways, because the first game they were just like shooting out of their minds and the heat were missing some wide open shots. But I felt like you could really see, and Karras and Sabonis didn't even have super efficient scoring outings in that game, but you could see how much of a difference it made going from like what the diluted version of Victor in the bubble was to having Karras. And some of it wasn't like the heat tend to blitz the person who draws the weaker defensive assignment. Like Jimmy was guarding Brogdon, which is why Karras was getting blitzed, but because someone was getting blitzed more frequently than what happened in the playoffs, that was opening up offense for the Pacers. And because Sabonis was out there, he did score against Jimmy Butler in the post a few times, and they were smashing down on him out of the 2-3 zone with all the length that they have up top, and they were pulling over when they didn't have that roll gravity in the season before. So just kind of showing what the roster's potential could be in that specific matchup after they got swept and didn't beat the Heat last year. Um I thought those were two impressive wins. And to be honest, like they were doing a lot of stuff offensively too. I wrote this in the aftermath of it. Like there were times through the middle portion of the season where it felt like teams had really scouted a lot of their sets and actions. Like the Pacers weren't brand new anymore. And you could see spots where several players be it. And I'll totally give miles props for this one. Like there were moments in the playoff series where Um, they would run TJ Warren off an Iverson cut and then Bam would come off of miles at the block and go over and already pull clear over to TJ coming off the Iverson and provide extra help. And miles would just kind of stand there behind the switch. Like he wasn't actively engaging himself. And in those two games, he was filling the gaps in a way that made him an active target. And you could see that in the game against Phoenix too. And that shows some of the growth that you mentioned before, um, just that total juxtaposition, but they were, they were doing a lot of unscripted things with cutting against the zone. And they didn't even, the heat didn't even like, this is the biggest thing I can say. The heat did not even need to play zone against the Pacers in the playoffs. They played tons of zone against the bucks. They played tons of zone against the Celtics and the Lakers. They never played a single possession of it in the four game sweep versus the Pacers. And they were playing against the Pacers this time around and the Pacers navigated it well. So I kind of felt at that point in time that the Pacers were going to turn a little bit of a corner, but then obviously, you know, a lot of this other stuff has happened with injuries and stuff. So I would lean toward the two game mini series in Miami, just because of the difference between last year. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good, that's a good call on that one. I, uh, I hedged a little bit and I, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, my favorite game was definitely golden state, uh, in, in January, uh, because Victor was out that game. Not like, again, it's not anything against Victor. It was just in, in retrospect. Um, you could kind of see what the team would maybe be like, uh, because we were kind of, again, I don't want to say sure that Victor wasn't going to be here, but like Aaron holiday had probably his best game of the year or one of the best, at least the best where he ever did point guard things this year, the most comfortable he looked on the floor. Um, Edmund Sumner went from, you know, the entire start of the year. I kept asking Tom after games, why isn't Ed playing? Why isn't Ed playing? Why isn't Ed playing? And finally, Edmund Sumner gets broken out uh, to play 31 minutes, guard Steph Curry for most of the night in boxing one, and just – get to be an NBA player. Like we got to see Ed really get to have a real role and impact in a meaningful game. And uh, unfortunately it didn't translate over to the next couple of games. And we had to wait a while before he got his main role, but you, you got the flash of like, this could be Edmund Sumner at the NBA level. Like we we've seen flashes throughout, but he, we saw him got, get to contribute to a real game and have an impact. And that just was like, the, that was the most fun win to watch the entire year because you knew what Steph Curry could do. And like that, the, 
it was just that I really enjoyed that game. Like I, I, I don't think I look forward, like I always look forward to doing pods after the game, of course, but like I knew after that game, I was like, Oh man, I get to go talk to Tom about how awesome it was watching Ed play and, and seeing that growth. And like, um, that was just a really fun, really fun game, really fun moment too. Yeah. And I think that like, just to add on a little detail there that you mentioned they played box and one with Edmund Sumner in that game. And I mentioned that they played box and one against Colin Sexton against the Cavs. Those two games seem to have something in common there, especially early in the season, the Warriors like kind of makes sense to play box and one against Steph Curry in that particular matchup, because I'm okay. If Kelly Oubre beats me from three, aren't you? And yeah. against the Cavs, like Colin Sexton was the only one causing them problems. So if you can prevent him from touching the ball, with TJ McConnell, I'm okay. If the rest of the Cavs, shoot me out of a game like I guess you tip your hat it does speak to the fact that in the Cavs game like that you had to resort to box and one in order to play semi-competent defense but I will say those are probably the two games that I would point out and be like hey that was a time where that wrinkle actually worked and made sense actually worked and made sense and a lot of other times it's been deployed and and like I mean Everybody read the article that I wrote. Junk defense for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they, I wrote against the Wizards and what some of the pitfalls would have been of putting that out there in that particular matchup to begin with, yet, let alone that. I mean, and I will say there was times even in those two games where it just doesn't seem like they know what, what their rules and responsibilities within this are like, mm-hmm. and maybe that's a lack of practice time. I don't know what it is, but um, sometimes they're more successful in that because they're the opponent just happens to miss the shots that they give up wide open because, you know, even going back to the Clippers game, they had some really botched coverages, but yes, it is important to point out those two games in a time when that worked, but okay. So were we counting the joy question as my question, or are we just counting that? Let's just count that as a general question. Okay. So I'm, I'm just asking questions that people ask me. So if you don't like what we talk about, (laughs) you can blame the people on Twitter. So I'll go here. What do you think the play-in rotation should be? Who should be in? Who should be out? Oof. Um, and this is tough. We'll, we'll do it with if Brogdon and Miles hopefully are available and if they aren't. So let's just start with if they're available. Yeah. So, I mean, if they're available, you're playing both Domas and Miles. Obviously, they're starting together. Uh, Brogdon's starting. Karras is starting. I guess that's an interesting question because then – we haven't gotten to see O'Shea with both Domas and Miles healthy, at least not in like a fuller capacity because he he didn't play. Exactly. Yeah, because I really don't like I personally just don't think that O'Shea is a three. Like, I think he's just in my opinion. Like, maybe you could you could justify. Putting I think him he's a three. four. I think he I can think attack closeouts. But yeah, he's just in terms of like actually doing a little bit more once he attacks a closeout. I don't know if I trust him as a three, um, especially if he's out there with both the bigs. Um yeah, I mean, are you starting Doug? Are you starting Justin? I mean, I guess it would depend on the playoff matchup. Doug has done really Let's well. Let's just imagine it's the Wizards. Let's just imagine it's. Oh, uh, well, I guess we'll just. Um, because that's who I anticipate it's going to be. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The Wizards. Well, then, yeah. Um, so I think for the third start, I would probably put. Um, I would probably put Edmund Sumner out there, because I I just I really like what Ed can do attacking off drives he can get you going in transition um i think you can kind of i mean you can at least make it so malcolm doesn't have to defend russ the whole game uh because 
I mean, he's capable of it, but we just know he's better guarding up a position. Um, I, I'm, or maybe you put him on Beal. I don't know. I guess, well, instead of thinking about that, I'll just think of the rotation. So, yeah, I, I would start Sumner um, because Justin's just been so much better off the bench, it feels like, and you can save his legs a little bit and not have to, you know, force him to play a trillion minutes. Um, Goga's probably going to play 10 minutes off the bench, 10 or 12. I think that he's capable of it, especially against the the backups that the that Washington throws out. I personally just in watching Washington this year, I don't know if you got the same vibe. I don't think that Alex Len is going to be in their playoff rotation. It really just feels like they uh, play him out there to start games before, so they can bring Gafford in as a um, as like a change up off the bench a little bit, um, kind of like what the Lakers did with Dwight and Javale last year. Um, is Jeremy healthy? Yeah, I mean that's a question all on its own. Oh man, because if Jeremy's healthy, I, I, I don't, man, I don't know. Um, well, I, I mean, Doug is your second guy off the bench because TJ normally is going to be first guy in, but I guess that would change up too if you have Ed out there. This is a really tough question, <laughs> just like right off the bat. I didn't even. It's a really tough question because when you look at all three of the games between the Wizards, these two teams were never fully healthy in any yeah. of them, and I'm not necessarily saying that impacted you know, wins or losses one way or the other. I'm just like to actually look at what the matchups need to be. It's, it's tough because in the first game, Beal and Bertans were both out. And then in the next games, obviously the Pacers were down by several people. And then in this most recent one, Beal ended up getting injured at the end and uh, Pacers still have people out. Like we don't have Brogdon or miles to really judge various things. And like you said, Jeremy's, I don't know what his status is going to be, but I mean, the Alex Lund question is an interesting one because, I mean, generally speaking, the Wizards have been playing at a very deep drop. Mm -hmm. And that's why the Pacers were running. I mean, it's similar to what they did against Phoenix. People want to know why they run as much delay stuff as they do because they want to attack with Sabonis having the ball at the beginning at the top, running pin downs along the side so that they can get into that space and attack. And that's how they really got off to a good start in the third game, which makes me lean. Like, I I just think Doug is going to be prohibitive defensively in a pl- in a one game winner takes all play in game, because I think that Beal's probably going to hunt him some and so is Westbrook. So despite everything we said about Justin earlier, you know, this is one game to advance or to go home. Like I kind of feel like you, you about need to put Justin back in the starting lineup, mm. even though I think he's played really well off the bench and is ideally a bench player, just because you're going to have defense, but you're also going to have the threat of being able to run some of the Chicago stuff with Sabonis and being able to use some of his movement. Um, and that's, if that's, really regardless of if you're starting O'Shea and Sabonis or if Miles is hopefully available and you can play Miles. I also look at, I would match, like I looked, I charted how the Wizards are rotating Westbrook, Beal, and Ish Smith. And Westbrook is playing like the first six minutes of first quarters and then coming back in with about two minutes to play and, and playing with the bench. Whereas Beal's playing most of the first quarter and then coming back in to play like the last eight minutes of the second quarter with the bigger gap coming over, over the top of like the in-between. And then Ish Smith plays predominantly with Russ and the bench, though there is some overlap where he first comes in and plays with Beal. So I feel like 
because we don't know what Malcolm Brogdon's going to be like post hamstring if he becomes available for that game, that I'm probably going to match. It, it seems a little counterintuitive to what they've done throughout the year, but I would probably, I mean, the Wizards are heavily staggering these two people. They're going to have either Westbrook or Beal on the floor all the time, which is why in the second game the Pacers were running so much. Okay, we're triangle and two when they're both out here, and we're boxing one when only one of them's out here. And I don't really think they need to do that, but if I'm the Pacers. I'm going to be matching Brogdon, Lavert, and McConnell's minutes with those three. It's just a matter of which one are you matching with who. So I kind of feel like because Russ does less in the pick and roll when Beal's on the floor and is more used to attack secondary with his speed and to get into gaps, I feel like that suits Brogdon a little bit more than tracing Beal through picks. Mm-hmm. And I, because we don't know what the status of his hamstring is, I think it kind of makes sense to have him come back and play the smaller burst with a break, like what Westbrook is doing, and then let Beal play. I mean, let Lavert play most of the first quarter with Sabonis, like what they've been doing here of late to really tap into their chemistry, and then let McConnell play more of the Ish Smith role, which would be pairing him over the top of the quarter with Brogdon. So you would have a shooter, an off-ball shooter out there with McConnell but it just becomes who are you gonna cut like to me if Turner and Sabonis are both available Goga's probably not playing yeah like that's kind of where I lean now if Sabonis is the only one available you don't have a choice like the Wizards are playing multiple centers you got to go playing Goga off the bench but um definitely McConnell Justin and Doug are in I lean towards giving Sumner minutes just for his length. I mean, in the last game, the only people that were like the primary defenders, though they were switching probably more than I would like, it was Sumner, Justin, and Keldon, I mean, and Martin, sorry, um, defend Keelan. I don't know why I said Keldon. Sorry, listeners. I think about Keldon Johnson all the time. I don't know why I said that, but um, they were the ones that were predominantly guarding Beal as Mm -hmm. primary, so – I think that whether you go with Justin or Sumner at the three, you probably want to bring the other one in anytime, like to be on Beal, even though Beal still got 50 points anyways. Like some of the, some of the scores that Bradley got in that game, like we need to talk about, those were insane. Like one of them, they they literally had a, yes, they they literally had a wall of four people. Like Doug and I believe McConnell and I forget who else were, were clear off of Berton's and Neto, and I forget who the other person – I don't know who the third person dotting the floor was, but they were all in the paint, and Bradley Beal still scored. Like, he was just going through pylons. Like, yeah. I don't I don't know. It was insane. But, um, yeah, I mean, the long story short of all of this is, is this is not easy decision-making to decide who you're going to be cutting out of this rotation, especially when, like – it's hard to evaluate this roster as a whole because you just haven't seen the pieces out there, let alone against this one opponent when you need to win just one game. But my main takeaway is, is that Brogdon or Levert is going to be on the floor hundred percent of the time. Like I'm not going without one of them out there if they're both healthy and can go. Like I want to have minutes with them together, but they're going to be playing big minutes because it's winner go home. Yeah, I agree. And I also think too that, that I mean, you haven't mentioned his name, but I, that's where I'm going to mention him. Like, I don't think Aaron Holiday can play in no. the playoffs this year, unfortunately, no, like either. just given the inconsistency in his game, I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, and yeah, I agree with everything you're saying. You're par- parsing out much better than I can. Um, I would say too, like, would you try and, I mean, it's harder to match a center to a point guard's minutes because that just changes things uh, rotation wise. But I feel like if they're going to keep playing the scheme the way that they are, it is really tough to have Domas out there as the lone center it, and, and Russ 
going at the rim. Like, I mean, Russ just had a clean open runway and it's not on Domas. It's just the, the scheme plays right into, into Russ's hands. If no one is rotating over weak side um, and he's running right at the rim. Like that was a huge problem in the, in the first two games with Russ. And exactly. And that would make sense with this because if Russ is going to play, which is what he's been doing, like I said, like if Russ is going to play the first six minutes and then come out and come back with the bench, then you can play Brogdon and Turner and McConnell together during those spans and be playing Karras and, and Sabonis together to hopefully tap into a lot of the offensive juice that you're going to get. So yeah, I could see that. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Hopefully if miles is available, I mean, this is very, Uh, yeah. The injury report just came out today and miles is still out. And as is Brogdon, um, which is expected. I mean, if you have any hope, which I don't know that they do, but if you have any hope that the two of them are going to be able to play in a playing game, you don't really need to risk them, you know, tonight against the Sixers. I don't really know what difference that would make, but yeah, no, I definitely um, agree. Yeah. I also would say too, like this is just a whole other question, not even a question. This is just more um, because even when the team has been fully healthy, like there are guys sitting on the bench, and you're like, you know, they're they're not they're good players or they're quality NBA players. They're not even to play. I mean, there are definitely moves that need to be made with consolidation this summer. Yeah. Um, because at the end of the day, you can't play 12 guys consistently or 11 guys consistently. That's just not. Um, it's very difficult to do it unless you're Mike Budenholzer during the regular season. Um, but for the most part, it's just not, not something that we're going to see consistently. Um, all right. So I guess that, that brings me to my next question. Uh, and it kind of goes along the same lines of, of what we just said on at the end there. I know that you do not do draft profiles other than the really awesome one you did on Yoli Childs. Um, but what position should the Pacers start in the draft? This is from John Valanga at J Valanga two, two, five, four. Because this is something I've been thinking about a lot. And I, I was talking to some some friends who, who cover the draft this morning. And I've been starting up draft profiles. I should have one coming out in a day or two. Um, but I guess this just brings up a lot of questions of how you feel about the about the roster right now. Like, what position do you think the Pacers should target in the draft? Or how would you want them to go about handling it? Well, can I let me reframe the question. Should yeah. the Pacers target a position in the draft? That's a good question. Yeah. I see like, that's part of the entire thing. Like I, um, it was really weird. Cause I was thinking about this this morning. Like if they go up in the lottery, because that's entirely possible. And again, I'm not trying to make it seem like they're going to get Cade Cunningham or something because that's just highly unlikely. Um, but I mean, the Pacers want to be really good right now. They want to be a playoff team. I don't think that's going to change, but like, if you get, in some way, shape or form, like if you luck into the, the fourth overall pick or something like that, I mean, how does that change up what, what you're doing? Because let's say you get like Jonathan Kaminga is a, he is a really high level prospect, but he is not ready to contribute to a winning team right away and might not be for two or three years. Um, and you can't afford to just have him relegated to a end of bench role or not even end of bench, but like just relegated to a smaller bench role. Like, of course, like, it, I mean, it brings up a lot of questions of player development, but if you're getting a guy that high, you're not drafting them. Like, you shouldn't be drafting them just to turn them into a bench player. Like, you have to see what they can do with the ball in their hands and uh, be willing to to have some risk, risks happen with them with the ball in their hands and be willing to maybe stomach a couple of losses because they're trying to grow as a player. But then that, again, that begs the question, like, you, you – you can't really do that when you're in the Pacers situation or like they don't, it doesn't really seem like that's something that they would be interested in doing. And we haven't seen that really play out before. Like 
even when Miles got drafted, Miles was like, I wouldn't say he was drafted as a role player, but like his skill set when he came in was very much so complementary to a lot of what they were doing on the roster already. And he was a work in progress still and figuring out what he's doing athletically. I know this is a really long tangent, but like, it's just, it's a really interesting thing to think about because this is the first time that the team is going to be drafting that high since they last reset the roster. Um, and that is really something interesting to me and I'm not sure what to make of it. Yeah. I mean, it's tough to say, cause I don't know how they envision the roster as a whole. Like we know that they don't go for full on tanking. I mean, they've mm-hmm. said this publicly, but um, if they don't think that they have a path, like if, if they've modeled it and don't see that, okay, if we're healthy, we don't see us being past, you know, we're going to be in the first round and either out of the first round or, or, or we'll get past the first round, but that's our ceiling. Like if that's what they see and they think that they need to get high level draft picks to be competitive, especially with the way that the NBA is going right now, then maybe some of their motivation is we're going to trade a big this summer and whichever big fetches us a higher pick is the way we're going to go. And we think we're going to be in a rebuild while we still try to be competitive with what, whichever players we have left. Um, it brings about a better point. I mean, it's just what you're saying. Like, and, and I don't want to take it too far. Like I have not been near as mad online about Cassius Stanley's minutes as the rest of the internet has seemed to be. But I mean, I think some of that was foreseeable. I mean, yeah. this entire roster is loaded with combo guards and centers. Like, I, I mean, I pointed this out very early in the year. Like, they had how many players under whatever height? Like, where were his minutes really going to even come from? And even during this injury time, to me, I feel like looking at it, and for one, like, I kind of want to know, like, a lot of the people that are mad, did they watch him play in the G League bubble? Because, like, I know he had a foot injury, but uh, he didn't, like – and I'm not saying he can't develop and, and get better for the Pacers with time, but uh, he was pretty passive operating within their sets. And his defense, a lot of times was like watching a swinging door when they were in Orlando. So I kind of understand why they weren't rushing to spring him out onto the floor when, even with the injuries. Plus I feel like this bit of time was pretty important for the Pacers to evaluate. Hey, if we're going to move a starter, we need to know which starter we want to move and how these other pieces fit together. So but the long-winded point of that being is there wasn't – you drafted a guy where you really didn't have opportunity for him to play. And yeah. and that's been the same with, like, what we said with Goga. Like, you drafted Goga, and for the most part, unless there's an injury, there's no time for him to play or develop. So my gut instinct generally is you don't draft per- – for position you draft mm-hmm. for whoever you think the best player available is on the board but the downside of that is that's you know what they said they did with goga and now here we are in year two and while i do think that you can point to ways that he has gotten better he's not really getting an opportunity to do this consistently and, and unless they move a big there's not really going to be a spot for him to be part of this regular rotation anyways so i guess i lean towards take the best player available and and I don't know because I don't know how they view the rest of the roster. Yeah, it's really – I have a lot of thoughts on that um, because I've really been diving into draft stuff and trying to get more ingrained with with being part of the draft process. And um, it's really funny because in scouting Cassius, like it was really clear that he was going to be a project. Like, um, And I don't mean that in a bad way. I think some people th- hear that and they're like, oh, you, how could you say that? Like with Cassius, he just – his handle is extremely underdeveloped yes. for for a yeah. player at the, at the two spot. And – theoretically he's going to be a two because he doesn't have a big wingspan but he's extremely quick laterally like I think you can envision him being 
a two guard who can guard some threes that attacks closeouts and hits threes. But the problem is he just doesn't have the handle to do it. His decision-making isn't like terrible, but his, his, his dribble just isn't there to make any kind of live dribble read. Um, and the just point being like, like you're mentioning, I agree. Like I, I just, I didn't think that he was really going to get that much time this year. Like I thought maybe at the beginning of the year I did, but within two or three weeks after we'd seen how the rotation plays, I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. Cassius is just not going to play this year. Like, um, he's, he wasn't at a, at a place to be part of a roster that is ready to contend now. And we're trying to contend now or be a playoff team now. And, um, I mean, that's part of what's dunk about the, uh, the G league bubble with like, I, right. I love that it happened, but like the, the season's totally shortened and you don't really right. get, you to only have get like 12 games. And like I said, I believe he was dealing with either an ankle or a foot injury yeah. for a game or two. So that obviously wasn't helpful either, but definitely. And yeah, I guess, uh, I think my final answer to this is, I, I just don't love the debate because ultimately it comes down a lot of times to a little bit of both. Like you have to draft at times for what you need, because sometimes you just can't have three starting level centers on a team. And I'm not saying yoga starting level, but like if he was on a bad team, he probably would get close to starting minutes because I mean, he was a near lottery pick. You want to see him develop um, and play through his mistakes, but like you, so you have to draft, a guy who you know you're going to be able to give a real opportunity to like with Isaiah Stewart with the Pistons is like the best example I can think of a lot of my friends who who are scouts were not high on Stewart but uh I mean they gave him a real opportunity to just keep experiencing and growing his role and that's important like you can't just have like even you could have a maybe like let's say like the top like the 10th best player in the draft but if if he's the 11th guy on your depth chart, I mean, he's not going to be able to show that that's, that's just how it goes. Like if, unless there's a real opportunity to develop and um, do something other than play garbage time minutes, I mean, you're just not going to know what a guy's capable of doing. Um, so it's, it's like somewhere in between. Uh, but I would say too, if the, if they do draft another big, I just like, I, that's not going to happen. But somebody asked me that this morning, like if they somehow got the second overall pick, cause that's what made me think about this a lot. Like if they were to get the second overall pick and theoretically Evan Mobley is the second overall pick in terms of talent. And I would agree with that. Um, they probably wouldn't pick Evan Mobley, but regardless, it just, it, it brings a lot of interesting questions. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens though. Okay. So my last question, and again, if you don't, like this question <laughs> go blame the people on twitter um is i think what we do kind of have to rehash some of the stuff that happened over the last week unfortunately oh, even no. though even though we wanted to keep things upbeat i think that we well that was the podcast thank you guys yeah, we, no, have, yeah. <laughs> we do a little bit so they asked um if a change is made who would be the best coach suited for this roster what would realistic coaching options be um, and I'll just tag on to that. Like, has anything that's happened over the last week really changed your opinion on a lot of the reporting that came out and the initial, whether it was Woes, Shams, Jake Fisher, you know, whoever it was, talking about some of Bjorkren's coaching style behind the scenes. Has any of these last three games really shifted your opinion on any of that? No, not at all. Um, and I said this, I was lucky enough to be on Lockdown Cavs with some good friends yesterday and, uh, we did a crossover pod for IC. And I, I mean, I said that as well. It's not even just like I could, I could handle the, you know, things being questionable on court at times, but just all of the off court stuff and the way that 
reporting has shown like, you know, how things have been handled between him and uh, people who, who aren't even part of the team. There's part of the support staff. Like that's just, that's and listening to you on uh, also, if people haven't listened to this, they should go listen to you on nerd or she wrote last, last week. That was fantastic. I love Mo death. It was death. Oh my God. Mo, Dave and Seth, uh, terrible combination <laughs> of names at the end. Um, I mean, it just, that stuff just should not be happening. And I just don't, for me, maybe I've been a little bit too harsh and critical of it, but I don't think so. I mean, I, I just don't think you can have that kind of stuff happen in your organization. I guess I understand not firing him yet because optically it just would look weird. And it, but regardless, I think it looks weird optically to have not fired him already too. And just trying to make it seem like everything is fine. Um, like it's very much so that meme of the dog sitting at the table, drinking coffee while the, uh, the, the fire is going on in the kitchen. It's just like, it's fine. And I, there was a legitimate hug on camera, Mark. Yeah, hug oh, happened. yes. Yeah, Greg Foster and Gogobtaze, like they, they were shooting around before a game. Whoopee. Like, I, I'm, I'm not trying people, to be – People so, are standing up on the bench and cheering. It's – I just – I'm not trying to be, like, harsh and critical. <laughs> no, I know. I totally from, see where you're No, going. I know you're joking, but it's just, like, can we not recognize that that is performative? Like, that is 100% performative. Like – that I, I'm not, Hugs that, can't happen behind closed doors. Oh, man. Ugh. Um, yeah. Yeah. So nothing has changed I, for me. Right. So I just want to tag on into this space that, like, I literally have this pulled up and I don't want to, I don't want to misrepresent or misquote what the further reporting was. So this is Bob Kravitz from The Athletic, um, a paragraph of him addressing some of the stuff that's been rumored. He says, Quote, the issues are real. I've talked to a number of NBA types in recent days, including a Pacer source, and the problems are not a figment of any reporter's imagination. They talk a lot or they talk about a lack of communication or a poor communication style. One source called the Pacers, quote, an emotional powder keg. They talk about the way he micromanages his players, his coaches, and just about anybody who plays a role in the organization. They talk about him being an emotional time bomb who, like so many players and the coaches in the NBA, is struggling with life during the days of the pandemic. Then later on in the article, and in that spot, I will say that he did say that a source had told him that TJ Warren asking for a trade how, was told that that was BS. So mm -hmm. then later on in the article, there's a quote where he says, according to reports and my own reporting, Bjorkren has crossed just about everybody in the organization. Brogdon, a huge fan of Bjorkren's early, has soured on him. Sabonis is no great fan, and the list goes on. Then also Scott Agnes on his Fieldhouse Files, um, which is great, his video series that he does every so often on the May 8th episode. And again, this is just quoting when he was he was talking about the actual stuff with Bjorker. And he says, Nate has not lost the locker room. There are certainly several guys who are still fully behind him. No, things have not been perfect. Some of the things that are out there, I've heard differently, but a lot of it is true. Treatment of staff from, and then he goes on to mention treatment of staff, his communication style, he doesn't distribute work. And when he does, some of the work doesn't seem appropriate for those at hand. And when he calls people uh, or when he calls people out, he embraces confrontation and then mention some of the stuff about being a different person publicly than he is privately. And I would encourage, you know, go read that article if you want the full, what both of their full opinions were, but I just didn't want to misquote what they had, mm -hmm. but that coming on the tails of what Jake reported at least shines a light on. And like we said on that Hawks podcast in the aftermath, I mean, Jake had, those were sourced from, I mean, it said a Pacer source, a person 
and close to the Pacers, you know, whatever it is that when they were referring to some of the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde stuff. And, and basically what you'd be doing is you'd be asking somebody to like, you'd be counting if, if he stays on for the next year of his contract, you you're acting, you're expecting that he's going to act his exact opposite next season. That's like based on what you've yeah. known, like, and I realize that he took some responsibility for it and whatnot, but on the one hand, like we have people telling us that what he's saying or what he presents publicly isn't necessarily who he is privately, at least that's what the reporting seems to indicate. So it's kind of hard to take that seriously. And then like you and I said, like, why do you have to learn how to treat support staff and like assistant coaches and stuff? Like, I don't know if that's a risk that I personally would be willing to take that that's suddenly just going to turn its way all around because this would be different. This isn't just you having a clash with players or whatever other coach it was like, this is staff. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that feels a little bit extreme to me, but anyways, the main question that the person asked was who would be the best coach suited for this roster? Uh, I just wanted to offer that as a background to what we were. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's tough. Like I think, I guess I really like it's hard to know because I don't think this is I mean, it's this is probably not even close to what the roster is going to look like next year, in my opinion. Like, it really just seems like given how the year has gone and we've talked about it, like it's going to be a very different roster in some regards. Maybe not like like I don't think the starters are going to be drastically different, but I mean, Doug's up for for uh, free agency and it's going to be very tough for him to be around. I, I think it's going to be borderline impossible cap wise to have both TJ Connell and Doug McDermott as Pacers next year. Um, you know, it seems likely that the bigs are going to get split again. That's not reported or anything, but like, you know, it just, it, given how the year's gone, I would be kind of surprised if they aren't. Um, but I guess just in terms of coaching, like, I, I mean, in talking to people who, who I know around the league, like there are differing opinions, but like, how do you feel about Kenny Atkinson as a coach? Cause I, I really enjoyed what he did. In Brooklyn, I haven't dug into his X's and O's or anything, but in terms of like looking at player development and the way that they were able to bring up Brooklyn while he was there, I mean, I, he's he's certainly a viable candidate. He's not a head coach right now. I think he's with the Clippers, if I remember correctly. Um, it feels like I think three or four of the candidates from last year ended up being can- <laughs> like assistant coaches with the Clippers. But um, is that a name that you would you would have on your list or a short list of, of candidates? Yeah, the thing with Kenny is, is I think that some of the motion stuff that they run it, that he would use was semi-schemable. Mm-hmm. Like that series between Brooklyn and Philadelphia, like they top-locked Joe Harris and that really like put a crunch on their offense. I mean, obviously Kenny Atkinson has history with Karis LeVert, so that's that's one aspect of it. Um, and whatever your opinion of the DeAndre Jordan, Jared Allen debate, like obviously he failed at star management. Like – yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving that DeAndre Jordan should have been the starter, but he didn't manage that situation. So that would be one hangup I would have. I mean, it sounded like from what the various reports were that the finalists were, and I don't know this, I wasn't there, but that um, Nate Bjorkren, Chris Finch, and Dan Craig were kind of the three that they had circled around. Obviously, Chris Finch is now employed in Minnesota. Um, there was a lot to like about what Dan Craig did in the G League on both ends of the floor. I mean, that was arguably the most dominant G League team of all time when he won a title there. And I like a lot of the things that Miami does. Some of the things that they do offensively is some of the stuff that Bjorkens ran. I mean, I pointed out they run some of the same plays. If you have a guy like Doug that's going to be returning 
where you can get motion around some of the stuff that Sabonis does, similar to what they do with like Bam and Duncan Robinson. But um, most of Dan Craig's defensive system was built around switching, which, you know, it's tough to say because like you said, we don't know who's going to be on this roster next year. But I mm-hmm. think that my main takeaway that I would answer this question is kind of how I answered it on Nerder. Like clearly it needs to be a coach who's going to manage stuff behind the scenes better than what's being reported. Again, I don't have inside information of that, but this is why it's tough for you or I to make very much of a contribution to this conversation at all, because there's no way to know how these people actually manage players and staff and people, which seems like the most important component in this conversation. But I do think that one hire that would pretty much from what I can tell of people that are on Twitter, on our site, other places that, might be a really nice refresh and I hope that they don't completely shine away from first time hires. If they do decide to move on that, this doesn't taint that Um, Becky Hammond. Oh yeah, I agree. Becky Hammond will be great. I actually wonder too, genuinely, genuinely, I mean, pop is going to retire soon, uh, sooner rather than later. Cause I know even last year it was up in the air, whether or not he would return. It really seems like the the keys are going to be handed over to her. Um, That's just my read. Like, I I don't know if that's actually true, but Regardless, I agree uh, because based on all anything I've ever read in terms of quotes or anything out of out of San Antonio and people I've talked to in San Antonio, like she is awesome there and they have loved everything she's done. I've like and it's easy for me to say, you know, like I've never seen anything uh, negative on Becky Hammond and just like even in game, like you can tell how well people respond to her when when she goes up to them and talks to them on the sideline. And I, I agree. It would be, I, I would love that hire. Um, I'm sure that, that some people would maybe not. And I, because of another first time head coach and I agree, like, I, I don't want them to shy away from that. It's just, it all comes down to who is the right candidate. And that's, what's important uh, because the first time around was not so much, but. Um, wh- and that wh- was one other aspect just to, on the Dan Craig thing. I remembered when I wrote my longer profile on him, I listened to a podcast where, Um, the player who was the MVP of the G league that season who played for Dan Craig's team talked about how he just had a really open door policy and was a good communicator. He had a business approach, but also made it a point to, to from guys one through 15 to be able to come and talk to him at any time when they wanted to. So, and again, that's just one player's opinion. And obviously it was the best player on the team, but. Well, Hey, if you ask Nick nurse, one, one player's opinion doesn't matter. So. (laughs) Yeah. No. uh Uh-huh. But yeah, I mean, Obviously, they've interviewed a lot of candidates last year, so they should have a fairly decent handle on who might be out there. And um, Chauncey, also another one that played for the that's coaching with the Clippers right now, is somebody that they apparently had interest in. So, I think generally speaking, though, to answer the person's question, is it's a big IDK, which yes. is most of my responses for all of these Pacers questions. Like, I will happily say and admit that there's a lot that I don't know, and I I don't know. I, I hope that if that was a change that would need to be made, that, that the process would be a little bit different than what at least was reported in, in Jake Fisher's article though. So I'll say that. Yeah. I 100% agree. Um, all right. So I guess this is uh this is the time for food corner then, isn't it? I I'm very excited for this. Like I'm really excited for this. I mean, too. I'm excited, but I'm also nervous because I don't want to be shamed. I am I am interested to see what you have to say. Um, well, just to, to highlight, I mean, you and I did our top five least favorite foods last month. 
our top five favorite foods of the month before, which I think I got flamed for harder than anything ever on 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 Twitter. And that's fair. Um, Grady Smith apples are a top notch food, whether you think so or not. Um, but this time we have a little bit different. Uh, and by a little bit different, I mean very different. If you haven't followed along with us on Twitter, we have a very different thing. Um, so this is a, a direct message. I believe it was SpongeBob Karate Shops on uh, on IC, if I remember. If I remember the handle properly, I have it cropped out on uh, on the recipe on accident. Uh, so this is from this is from last month's episode in the IC comments. Ooh, you guys ever tried this? Half can of spinach drained, half a pouch of garlic microwavable rice, and as uh, our, our guy Lazarus Jackson pointed out, uh, I never thought that was a three word combination. It is. Uh, Uncle Ben's has it. Um, Squish these two things around evenly over a large plate as if it's a pizza crust. Then pizza spaghetti sauce on top of that. Shredded cheese on top of that. And whatever pizza toppings you like on top of that. And microwave, of course. Good, healthy, quick, economical pizza pasta substitute. It's good stuff. Give it a try and tell me what you guys think. So, Caitlin, I, uh, I'm going to ask you what you think. Uh, do you have any preface or anything that you want to yes, say? Yes, I mean, before? I think that I think that we both need to lay out what our processes were yeah. and what specific ingredients that we use so that people can have a better image. Um, if you want to see what these pizzas, quote unquote, pizzas <laughs> looked like, yeah, you can get on Twitter and see what each of ours looked like. But um, so I bought the spinach that had Popeye on the front, and I strained the spinach. And I have dishes. My dishes are actually like deep. You can mm-hmm. probably see it in the picture. So that allowed me to really press the rice down. I bought the same rice that you did, Uncle Ben's garlic and butter microwavable rice, which I've eaten that before. Like I'm fine eating microwavable rice. That's that's fine. So I used all that and smashed it down into the crust as we were told. And then I bought a sauce, which I'm sure that you're going to love. Um, it was olive oil, garlic, and basil tomato Ooh. sauce. <laughs> spread that over the top because that's my favorite sauce and then i i believe it says mozzarella on here oh no he just put shredded cheese so yeah i i did not use mozzarella because i have to eat like harder cheeses because of like food sensitivity so i bought mm. shredded parmesan and put that on as my cheese and then i bought mini pepperonis and i had a can of black olives because olives are awesome and you probably should have a can of them all the time mm. and put those on top and then i put a little bit of like powdered parmesan on top of that so that was my overall process and i will say that when it came out of the microwave it's kind of like if you made nachos in the microwave versus baking them yeah like the cheese didn't look super appealing i don't think that the entire thing by the eye test which is what we eat with first our eyes that it looked very good but and i fed this to four other people who are at my house and we're all vaccinated so like don't get on me because people are at my house um that I did not think it tasted bad, Mark. I I did not think it tasted bad. The combination of flavors that I had on my pizza were very realistic. I think the only way that it went wrong is that we called it a pizza, which I guess this commenter actually put pizza slash pasta and substitute. So in their defense, but I think it would be a little bit like if we went on an episode of Chopped and we were like, hey, we made this ratatouille. And then Alex Gornichelli's like, well, you know, this doesn't taste that bad, but it's not a ratatouille. So therefore I have to dock you. Like if we didn't go into it thinking this is a pizza, um, I think our opinions would be different. And if you closed your eyes and ate a bite without really looking at what you were eating, 
that flavor profile was not bad. So much so that I read the recipe to the people that I gave it to. And one of them was like, I'm pretty iffy about this. And even when I got it out of the plate and served it, they're like, nah, I don't know. And they said, it's okay. Like I probably wouldn't eat it a bunch more times, but it was edible. Another person actually ate two pieces of it. Oh my God. And the third person said they might actually make it for a snack again. Okay. Like, it it wow. did not taste that bad. I did not eat a full piece of it because I tended just to limit my cheese intake as a whole. But I think overall that some of the people that are hating on this, and I will admit to the Italians that are out there, you're right. This is not pizza. And my favorite pizza, as we said on the first episode, is Neapolitan style. Like shout out the Italian pizza. That is the best kind. Your crust is the best. The, the ratio of sauce and, and what toppings you use, delightful. Like, this is no shame to you. This is just like a little afternoon thing. It lets me stick to my strengths of using a microwave. I think ideally it would have been better baked. But I think if you're just like hating on this because of the canned ingredients, you're just too bougie. And that's what I think. <laughs> you're too bougie if you will not at least try this and eat it. Like, just close your eyes and get your spoonful of the food and really just evaluate it on the taste. Like, my sauce with that rice... And the pepperonis were good. The black olives made it. I mean, who doesn't like a black olive? Me. <laughs> of I mean, course the me. Whole, but... the, the whole thing was not bad. Am I going to serve this like legitimately at a party or expect other people to eat it? Would it be the pizza that I would call up and be like, oh, I'm going to order this rice pizza? No. But as something cheap and easy, which is what it was billed as, this is economical and easy. I think it hit those marks. Okay, before I go in, I do have a question. Uh, what is your what is your thought on cauliflower, cauliflower crust pizza? That's a hard word to say. Uh, thoughts on cauliflower crust pizza? I mean, I don't want it. Yeah, I mean, exactly. if we're being That's honest, like I want the real pizza. This, but and I and I will say this: I also can't. Uh, cauliflower is another thing that I just can't eat. Like I would feel very bad if I ate cauliflower, so that taints my opinion. Mm. But if I was a person who legitimately had gluten issues, this would be a way for me to have something pizza-like. Okay, so I agree to an extent. I think the the flavor in and of itself was actually not terrible. Like it wasn't good. Don't get me wrong. Like it was, it was passing grade. So that, but like a D plus passing grade for me, like I could take a bite and I didn't throw up. And that's a, that's a win as far as I'm concerned. Cause I was very, very nervous making this thing. I knew you were still alive after eating it last night. I wasn't sure how I was going to turn out. Um, so just to explain my process. Yeah. We, I think we got most of the same ingredients. I unfortunately forgot to buy pepperonis and did not realize until I got home. And I think that severely, uh, I think that that put you down the wrong that road. definitely put me down the wrong path um I also forgot to buy mozzarella cheese so I had cheddar cheese and instead, that which definitely is not put you down the yeah, wrong that, path it, so I I I 100 unloaded the clip in my foot in some regards but just so in making this thing part of the issue was that I did it as a slow process to keep taking pictures and show everyone online the the dumb stuff that I do in my day and the how did you feel about the spinach because i just felt like why 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 do we have like i i can understand the rice as a base i could not understand the spinach like the spinach was a loss for me i just I think did you strain the spinach i did i drained the spinach out and 
and did I, you strain it? I did not strain it. That, that, that might have been where you mistake. also went wrong. Like, it took more of the liquid out. I think that the spinach was partially there as a binder. That's a good point. And it did offer somewhat in flavor. Like, at first I thought my basil sauce might be somewhat in conflict with it, but it really wasn't. I mean, I don't think I would go and buy canned spinach again. My future intake of spinach, I would rather it was fresh, but I didn't think that it was bad. I will say that when it was all said and done, I didn't eat the whole thing, and I went and did other work. And I don't know how yours came out. Like, did you just eat it with a spoon? I tried to use a fork. Um, It wasn't really super forkable. Um, yes. And here's what I'm about ready to say. It wasn't like I, I scooped it out and, and cut it into that and then just like scooped it out for other people. But after about like a half hour, cause I'm lazy and I had just left this plate on my counter, I went back out to the kitchen and I was like, Whoa, this is congealed. And it was a piece. <laughs> Do I want to eat something that is congealed? That just sounds like that sounds awful. Yeah, congealed. it's not appetizing. I like, congealed I mass. On, oh my god! I wouldn't have eaten the congealed thing in the aftermath, but I do think if it had been baked, that yeah. it probably would have been more pizza-like than coming out of the microwave. It's kind of like, have you ever bought one of the frozen pizzas that you put in the microwave, like what, like the personal-sized ones? Yeah, the crust just comes out terrible out of yeah, the microwave. Yeah, it's like a like if you had a toaster oven it's more reasonable. Again, like I'm not going to tell you that a frozen pizza is on par with like 800 degrees, three fires that I love. Like, no, a wood fired pizza is clearly going to be better, but um, yeah, if you put it in the toaster oven, it's better than just the microwave. But the point being is it did become crust like after extra time sitting on the counter. I of course was not going to go back for more after it had congealed, but it did congeal. So I'll say too, um, you know, this is, I think like, like we're getting to the point, like, I I think flavor was fine. Like I could, I could live with the flavor. The biggest problem for me is just the mouthfeel. The mouthfeel of it was kind of awful. The texture, pretty awful. Um, If I told you this was a deconstructed Italian or I don't even want to use the word Italian, but just like pasta bowl thing would would that would those things have bothered you as much i mean probably because i just i don't like pasta that much to begin with anyways um but this is rice and you said you like rice i like i don't i don't eat microwavable rice normally i i uh, am one of the annoying people who takes a half hour to cook my rice just because i think it's better texture but um yeah i mean mean, the cheese was awful oh the the cheese cheese was awful like i won't even i won't even debate that, that what you build that as is exactly right like how do you watch the pacer games do you watch them on league pass or do you get to see them on fox sports indiana uh it's league pass okay so you don't see the skyline commercials that are on during that uh thank or do thank you? god yes i don't see the skyline okay because like i i'm seriously wondering if it's possible during those ads that they have menu items that are cheese with cheese because they put so much cheese. It's absurd. By like, the you time, literally that, take by a the bite time the commercial just... is over, I'm genuinely expecting like, okay, here's what the combo is. And when you get your Pepsi, it also comes with a side of cheese. Yeah. And that's I, a bit what your pizza looked like. It, it looked exactly like Skyline. And I sent it to my, to, to my group DM, uh, an elite group DM, I will say. Some great people in there. Uh, and I am like the... 
I, I mean, I'll just be honest. I hate Skyline with a passion. Like I hate everything about it. I think all of them should be condemned and they don't need to exist. Um, we can do a lot better than eating spaghetti with a mountain of cheese on top, but that's just my opinion. Um, I, I think there's nothing redeeming about it. Like even their chili dogs, like I don't, I don't like chili. I think chili is just kind of gross um, to be completely frank. And I don't like hot dogs either. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, but then I don't know why you crafted a pizza in the well, image. Did, did, That's why you it was, it was cheddar cheese or cotilla cheese. I didn't really think either worked great for a pizza, but I figured that the cheddar would melt probably a little bit better than cotilla cheese. It, and it would at least like, I don't, I don't know. And how was this chicken working out? I mean, the chicken on the was surface, not good. On the um, surface, the chicken. I mean, there is a such thing as chicken and rice, but I don't think if I was eating chicken and rice that I would dump cheddar cheese on the top, and also dump some rando tomato sauce with it. <laughs> okay, well, the tomato sauce was the most redeeming part. I got uh, my sauce was elite. I buy I. That's the one bougie thing I get with pasta. I get I get the eight dollar sauce. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's just so good. Like it tastes so much better than if you buy something that's $2. I don't eat pasta enough because I don't like it, but I just get it because it's cheap. Um, you got to get the good sauce in my opinion, but yeah, I just, I don't know. I, it's certainly not something that I would recommend to anyone uh, ever. I think I would just say, let me Venmo you $10 for a pizza so that you don't do this to yourself. But um, you know what are. though, during pandemic times, I understand why this was a thing. Because in the early going, we were just trying to get any food that was available at a grocery store. Like half of my stores didn't even barely have food on the shelves because everyone was buying up like two weeks of food at a time during lockdown. So if these ingredients were in my kitchen and they were my means to getting pizza, I can't say that I wouldn't do it again. What it- I, I can't say that I wouldn't do it again. It wouldn't be my first choice, but I do think that some of the shaming is unfair i think that the flavor was fine if your eyes were closed okay i'm not trying to shame but it just it wasn't pizza we can't call it pizza no i'm not gonna call it pizza i'm not gonna call it pizza but i do think in some regards that the commenter who left this i don't know who your name is because mark cut your name off but whoever you were you're a bit of a visionary you think outside the box and i appreciate that outside the box inside the rice pouch um i guess you could say but I mean, send us more recipes because I'd be willing to do this again. I'm not. I, I would be willing to do this again too. Um, just not not canned spinach, preferably. And not eggnog. Not eggnog. Oh yeah, no eggnog. Um, probably not another pasta dish. Um, what else don't I like? There's a lot of things, but we'll, I'll, I'll try whatever. I just might not like it. I'll, I'll yeah. have strong opinions about it. Caitlin, do you have uh, do you have anything else you want to get off your chest before we get out of here? No, I mean, I think that we've covered that pizza in a very fair way, and hopefully we've set people on the right course. I agree. Hopefully that course is to a bigger and, and brighter food, but if you decide to try this yourselves, let us know how If you decide to try this yourselves, use my recipe. Yes, don't definitely don't use Don't go for the Skyline chili version of it. Yeah, avoid, avoid what I did at all costs because it was a mistake. Uh, well, Caitlin, this was a blast. I, I've really enjoyed getting to do this series throughout the year. It's been something that I look forward to every every third Tuesday of the month. Um, to everyone listening, of course, follow Caitlin, everything she does, follow me, uh, and just have a good rest of your day. And try and look for – we'll obviously have more pods and everything coming out soon, but uh, just try and enjoy the rest of the season as much as you can. 
uh, because it's kind of crazy to think that it's already almost over. It feels like we were only 20 games in not too long ago. So hopefully you're having a good day, having a good start to your summer, and we'll be talking to you soon.